All right. Let me go, without any further ado, invite Andy up to the pulpit. Come on up. <laughs> Andy's a good friend. We've known each other for, I don't know, like 16 years now. Yep. We worked together for nine of those years, and uh, he's just been a, he and his family have been a, a blessing to us, and uh, grateful to have him come and close out our series on the spiritual disciplines. So, Andy, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for having me here yet again. Um, yeah, Chris and I, we go way back 16 years. Uh, met in the CCO, worked together for nine years. He knew me when I didn't have as much gray in this beard, which I just started growing a couple weeks ago. It's been years since I grew the beard. And then when it comes out and you're like, wow, that's, that's a lot of gray in there. Age happens, right? It happens. We're all getting older. So uh, let me pray and then we can begin. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So is anyone here familiar uh, with Eric Little? Eric Little. Anybody ever heard of that name? We have a few people here. So for those who don't know, Eric Little, also known as the Flying Scotsman, that's such a cool nickname. I'm Scottish. I hope I get that nickname one day. But anyway, he was an Olympic sprinter in the early 20th century. Uh, he was also a, a man of God. If you've heard of Little, it's probably because you're familiar with the 1981 semi-biographical Oscar-winning movie, Chariots of Fire. If you haven't seen Chariots of Fire, you're probably familiar with its uh, amazing electronic synthesized soundtrack by Vangelista. Anyway, uh, Little um, had an amazing quote, which I absolutely love. So when he was younger, he was reprimanded by his sister for neglecting his responsibilities before God. And uh, as he devoted his focus towards competitive running, that's what he wanted to do. And as he responded to this criticism, Little uh, said this, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I think that is absolutely an amazing quote. Okay, an amazing quote. Little felt the closest to God when he ran. He felt God's pleasure. And this is right up my alley, not because I'm a runner. Um, I'm not but because of the spirit behind the quote. So I come from the Reformed faith in the Presbyterian Church, and the Reformed faith believes that all things belong to God. All things belong to God. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So everything is God's, including running. That's pretty cool. Uh, this line of thinking can be summarized with uh, the Dutch theologian Abra Abraham Kuyper, who said this, There is not a square inch in the whole of uh, creation over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. That is mine. And this means that everything you do, your, your job, uh, your rest, your hobbies, those are God's, and therefore it's a way in which we can glorify him. Eric Little, uh, though known for his running, was also known for something else, which is portrayed in the movie. In 1924, in the Semper Olympics in Paris, Little refused to run his favored 100-meter race because it was held on a Sunday. 
the Lord's Day, which we view as the Christian Sabbath. Now, I find this really interesting. Uh, I believe that the Sabbath is a day set aside by God to cease from your work so we can draw closer to God. Now, I have no idea what Little's heart was behind why he decided not to run, so I, I can't judge his motives. Uh, perhaps he was trying to be countercultural, right? Perhaps he was trying to bro- provoke questions, and therefore, by provoking questions, he could evangelize to people. Maybe he considered running as work. I don't know. However, I've always wondered if the Sabbath is the day we draw close to the Lord, and running is where little felt the closest to the Lord, why wouldn't he want to run? Wouldn't he want to use his God-given talents for the purpose that God had given him? God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Sometimes I think that we as Christians have an incomplete definition of what the Sabbath is. We often view it as a time to just stop your work uh, and rest. And I think that definition is true, but I think there's so much more to the Sabbath than that. I think we have to, uh, to realize what is the purpose, what is our purpose behind that rest, behind ceasing from work. And so today, I'm actually going to talk about the Sabbath. So uh, aren't you supposed to be talking about disciplines, specifically the discipline of celebration? Yes. Uh, Are you talking about the Sabbath? Yes. Uh, You got to trust me on this one. I'm not ignoring my assignment, Chris, okay? So to, to learn about the Sabbath, I believe that the best place to go is when the Sabbath was created in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. This is what it says. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Here we see that God, after finishing his creation, he looks at a world that he created very good. And upon seeing it, he consecrates the day. In other words, he sets the day apart. He makes it holy, and he rests. So the Hebrew word translated as rest in Genesis 2, it's actually vashabot and shabot, uh, where shabot is where we get the word Sabbath from. So the word is found uh, in both 2 and 3 when it says rest. The, the word is shabot. So on the seventh day, God Sabbathed. That's a, that's a way we could read it. Uh, Later in the book of Exodus, we see that observing the Sabbath is commanded by God to us. It says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So in this command, which is the fourth commandment of the the Ten Commandments, we are told to remember and observe the Sabbath day, uh, for God observed it in creation. So we rest from work. Uh, For God rests from work. This is 100% correct. Uh, This is what we are commanded to do. 
So does ceasing from work mean that I can't do household projects or mow grass or run or do anything that would involve sweat? Um, I believe the answer to these questions are no. We are not necessarily commanded to cease from these things. Growing up, this is how I viewed the Sabbath, right? As a stoppage of all things. Like you're on a vegetative state on the couch, right? You do nothing. You just watch football all day or something. And I think that's how many of us view it uh, or have viewed it at some point in our life. However, if we were take, to take a look at Scripture, we would realize that our definition of the Sabbath is incomplete, that it's more than merely resting. There is a purpose behind the resting. The resting leads to something. And uh, it definitely is not a, a, a stoppage of everything that you do. So what is it? Well, to understand uh, what the Sabbath was created for, we have to put Genesis 2 into context. And we need to know what was happening in Genesis 1, the other six days of creation. So if we take a traditional view, which I do, that Moses wrote Genesis 1, then we have to believe that he wrote it to a bunch of confused Israelites who were now wandering through the desert. Uh, The Hebrew people had just escaped Egypt, slavery, they had been unjustly put in for 400 years, and during that time, there was a good chance that the Hebrew people, people were assimilated into the Egyptian culture, into the Egyptian religion. Uh, they no longer knew where they came from or what they should believe. So when the Israelites read or heard Genesis 1, uh, they were most likely asking the questions, well, where do I come from? What, what should I believe? So in this sense, Genesis reads a bit like a History 101 or a Theology 101 textbook, showing the the Hebrew people their rich heritage and that there is only one true God versus, versus the polytheistic Egyptian society they had just come from. So if we read Genesis in this context, things start to fall uh, into place a little bit. Bless you. So how does Genesis 1 answer the Israelites' questions? Where do we come from? What should we believe? Well, first, that would have shown how powerful God is in the six days of creation. Genesis 1 was written as a competing narrative to other ancient Near Eastern creation stories. However, a big difference, the world is not created through some chaotic accident caused by war like a lot of those other narratives. No, the world was created through peaceful speaking. And God said, let there be light and it was so. Life wasn't created out of something. It was created out of nothing. It's what theologians call ex nihilo. It just means out of nothing. God is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. He is so powerful that he can create something from nothing, and that just blows my mind. It makes no sense whatsoever, and that's why it's amazing. Life was not an accident. It had purpose it had thought behind it. And so the Hebrews would have also seen that God created an earth that was good and perfect for them. Verbal repetition is an ancient Hebrew literary device used to get the readers or the hearers' attention. So when something is repeated, uh, just perk up, pay attention, right? And Genesis 1 is a perfect example of this. God is trying to get your attention. And what's repeated here? Well, after every instance of creation, we see that God looked at his creation and he said it was good. 
It was good. And after five joyous refrains of, and God saw that it was good, we see that the sixth day is capped off by the satisfied perfection of the sixth refrain, and it was very good. When he created the pinnacle of creation, which was humanity, God created a good earth that was perfect for us. And lastly, the Hebrews would have seen that God created an earth in perfect working order. Uh, And this can be seen through the days of creation. Day one, light and darkness. Day two, the sky and sea. Day three, land. Day four, the sun, moon, and stars. Day five, the bird and fish. Day six, animals animals and uh, humanity. And then on the seventh day, God Sabbath. So if you take a closer look, these days correlate with each other. In the first three days, God creates habitats, and the uh, next three days, he creates inhabitants for those habitats. So on day one, he created the habitats of light and darkness. And day four, he filled that habitat with the inhabitants of the sun, the moon, and the stars. On day two, he created the habitat of sky and water. On day five, he filled that habitat with the inhabitants of birds and fish. On day three, he created the habitat of lands and vegetation. And on day six, he filled that habitat with the inhabitants of animals and humans. Genesis 1 shows that we have an omnipotent God. How good the earth was made and how it was an earth created perfectly for us and, with, uh, and in perfect working order. And this is how the Israelites viewed it. And that's how we should as well because this sets up the rest of the story. In Genesis 1, we see that God created shalom. Uh, When we hear the word shalom, we know that it means peace, right? And usually we define peace as the absence of pain, of war, of conflict. And that's true. But the Judeo-Christian definition is a bit larger than that. Shalom is not just the absence of conflict, uh, but it is peace as the original way God intended it to be when he created the world in Genesis 1. It's a peace that is full, a peace that is complete, uh, a peace that is sinless, a peace that is harmonious. And when I say harmonious, I mean that every relationship was in perfect working order. Uh, relationship with God, relationship with others, relationship with yourself, relationship with creation. Harmonious. And that leads us to the beginning of Genesis 2, which I believe should be, have been placed at the end of Genesis 1. Uh, the Bible did not initially have chapter numbers or verses. They weren't added until the 16th century to help with location and memorization, which I'm actually very grateful for. However, putting the seventh day of creation in the new chapter actually, I believe, kills the momentum of what's going on here a little bit. So God creates this world with the pinnacle of the world being us, humanity. And then he stops, and he looks at his creation, at Shalom, and he Sabbaths. When Sabbath is translated, we, we usually see it translated as cease, like he ceases from his work, or rest, which we see it translated in the ESV, which I read to you. And that's correct. However, the definition is so much deeper than that. There is a purpose behind ceasing from work and resting. There is a synonym that we often forget to tag onto cease and rest. And that is celebrate. Celebrate. Shabbat, Sabbath, could be translated as celebrate. You can look it up in the Strong's Concordance if, if you want extra proof, okay? Um, 
And on the seventh day, God finished his work and what he had done, and he celebrated on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God celebrated from all his work that he had done in creation. And that changes the tone quite a bit. The day of rest was not because God was tired or needed a break, but it was a day of celebration and enjoyment of his creation. Sabbath means celebration. But in Genesis 2, God also consecrated it as a day of celebration, like a holiday. And that is why you see multiple times in the Bible the word celebrate is paired with the word Sabbath. You see this, Leviticus 23.3, Leviticus 23.39, Exodus 31.16-17, Nehemiah 10.31, Nehemiah 13.15, Isaiah 56.2. These are all examples of those words paired together. And here's another fun fact. So uh, Jews have seven major holidays, right? The Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the Feast of Tabernacles. And these feasts are a time of rem- remembrance for what God has done, but they're also a time of celebration for what God is doing. That's why they're called feasts. Feasts are celebrations, right? Do you know another name for these seven, uh, what these seven feasts are called? They are called High Sabbaths, High Sabbaths. God saw that he, all that he had made, and he celebrated. God celebrated what he had made. So uh, let's think of it this way. Have you ever watched any of those cake baking shows that are popular now? You know, you could think of Ace of Cakes or Cake Boss, Cake War. Uh, they had that YouTube thing, Is It Cake?, where you see like, like a, a can of Coke and they cut it. Oh, it's cake, right? Uh, or my favorite, which is the Great British Baking Show. So the Great British Baking Show, uh, if you ever watch it, these bakers toil over making a cake. Right, And they spend hours on it. And when they're finished, they have made some of the most beautiful cakes that you've ever seen in your life. They, they are, they're pieces of art, right? And the bakers will then take their cake before the judge, uh, Paul Hollywood or Prude. And the, the judge will look at the cake and they'll make a few remarks about its aesthetics, right? How beautiful the cakes are. And then what happens? The judge takes a knife and plunges it into the cake, Right? And I've always wondered, how does the baker feel about this? Like you spend hours designing and making a cake to look gorgeous only to have it just hacked, you know, in a matter of seconds. And for the longest times, I would always, I always thought, like, if I was a baker, that would bug me quite a bit, like someone just burning the Mona Lisa in front of you. But then I realized cakes are made to be eaten, right? That's... The real satisfaction of a baker's creation is it for it to be enjoyed through taste. This is where the true joy, the true celebration lies. Um, and and if you, you celebrate even more if you get that famous Paul Hollywood handshake at the end, right? So in the first six days of creation, God creates a beautiful cake. It's the most beautiful cake you've ever seen. It's gorgeous. There's nothing that compares to it. And then after the cake is completed, on the seventh day, he partakes in it. He tastes it. He celebrates his cake. And after cutting himself a slice, he cuts a few more. And he says, these slices, these are for you. Come celebrate with me. Celebrate God's creation. 
And yet we have some incomplete false notion about the Sabbath. That it is just merely uh, sitting on a couch and doing nothing. It's stopping from all things. Uh, And these false notions are nothing new. Uh, They've been around for millennia. Jesus dealt with these false notions. Um, Where did these notions come from? You know, they're not in scripture, obviously. Um, They come from tradition. So in ancient Israel, among Jewish people, they had what was called the halakha. Uh, It was uh, also known as the oral tradition of the rabbis. So the halakha were principles and regulations that the rabbis added to the law of God. They added them. And these principles and regulations were passed down from one generation to another generation orally. Um, when we, when, uh, we can actually find a compilation of the Halakha, what's called the Mishnah. It's a collection of Jewish writings that were gathered together and written down uh, in the second century. So the point of these oral laws of the Halakha is to build a fence around the law, to protection around the law in order to keep from violating or breaking the law. So they would see a verse like Leviticus 23.4. Six days shall you work, your work be done, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord and all your dwelling places. And then ask, well, what is rest? What does rest mean? What, what does work mean? Right? And then they created some amendments orally so they wouldn't break these laws. And that's how the Holocaust was created. It was, uh, it was not out of obedience to the law, but out of fear of breaking the law. And we see Jesus come to blows with the Holocaust many times. And one of these instances is found in Mark 2, where Jesus comes to blows against the oral laws, fencing or protecting the Sabbath. Uh, when walking around some grain fields, the disciples uh, and Jesus start plucking heads of grain to eat. And lo and behold, some Pharisees are there. I have no idea where they came from. The text doesn't say. I imagine them just like laying down and creepily rising up out of the grain. I don't know what's happening. Like the children of the corn or something. And they're popping up and they say, look at those workers. Look at those lawbreakers. Tells the Pharisees that it's okay. You know, it's okay to pick grain on the Sabbath, especially if you're hungry. And then he ends the conversation with a very interesting statement to put the Pharisees and the Halakha in their place. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even on the Sabbath. And that's actually a very interesting statement. What what does it even mean? Well, the Sabbath, which was a day of rest and worship and celebration, was given by God as a gift to humanity for their benefit and well-being. It was not meant to be a burden or a legalistic rule to follow. Just stop. Just stop. The Sabbath was intended to be a day of rest and refreshment, of ceasing from your busy, busy work throughout the course of the week. It was a time of celebration, a time to celebrate and focus on God and receive his blessings. And yet we we still struggle with what not to do on the Sabbath instead of focusing on what we should do. We should restore ourselves through rest and restore ourselves ourselves by celebrating God and his creation. 
And this should not be something that is constricting, right? This should not be something that is legalistic. This should be something that is extremely liberating to us. So think of something that you enjoy doing, something that brings life to your soul, right? Perhaps it's hiking. Um, Perhaps it's playing or watching a sport. Perhaps it's reading. Perhaps it's mowing grass. Perhaps it is being vegetative on the couch, and you've done your job on the Sabbath. Good job. Mine is actually uh, playing board games. Chris can tell you I I love to play board games. Now, you take those recreational activities and realize that they give you life for a reason. Through those things, you celebrate God and his creation and the personality that he has given you. So imagine doing those things on the day he intended for you to do those things. The Sabbath is not restricting. It is freeing. It is celebratory. God did not rest because he was tired. Like saying, man, that creation thing was, that was tough. That was hard. And I need a nap right now. No, God does not grow tired or weary. The Bible is clear about that. God wanted to enjoy and celebrate what he created. In the same way, the Sabbath is a time for us to celebrate God's creation and the beauty that surrounds us, including our likes and our passions. It is a time to appreciate the wonders of nature, the diversity of life, and the intricacies of God's designs. God's rest was not just a physical rest, but a rest of satisfaction and completion. And by celebrating the Sabbath, we recognize that our work is not the ultimate source of that satisfaction, but our true rest comes from our relationship with God. By celebrating, we affirm our freedom in Christ who has set us free from the bondage of sin and the bondage of death, and we celebrate the rest that we have in him and the joy of being a part of his kingdom. So let us embrace the Sabbath as a celebration of God's creation, of rest, freedom, of community. As we rest in him, we find satisfaction, we find joy, we find renewal. So let's observe the Sabbath as a holy day, as a consecrated day, a day set apart for worship, for rest, and for celebration. And may our Sabbath observance be a reflection of the love and grace of our God And may it bring glory to his name. So go. Go out there. Have fun. Celebrate for God has celebrated. Amen? Amen. So we have a few questions for you here that you can reflect on uh, later. Uh, How do you think we can honor God through our hobbies and leisure activities as Eric Little did through his running? What is your definition of the Sabbath, and how do you observe it? Do you think there is more to the Sabbath than just resting from work? Why do people often have false false notions about the Sabbath, and how can we avoid falling into the trap of legalism? How is the Sabbath a celebration of God's creation and our freedom in Christ? How can we use it to cultivate joy and renewal in our lives? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are here to worship you. We are here to celebrate you. 
So let us do so, dear God, with the freedom that you have given us to do so. May we celebrate you in every area of life, in our rest, our work, and our play. May we bring glory and honor to your holy and precious name. We ask all this in your name. Amen.